From the boardroom to the locker room, sport captures the imagination like little else. In this podcast, we talk to the men and women who make the big decisions and those who make the big plays to find out where sport is and, importantly, where it's going. But we do so through the only eyes that matter, those of the fan. Welcome everybody to another edition of Are You Not Entertained? This week, The Groundsman, sponsored by our friends at Entourage Media. Joining me as always, my two partners in crime here, uh, Roger Mitchell up there from the lake. Roger, come in. Hi, how are, you? how are you, Grant? Good to see you again. Very, very well indeed. And uh, fresh from his audition for the sequel to Snatch, Giles Morgan. <laughs> Hi, mate. Oh, I'm, 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 I've got a hoarse voice. It's nice to see you too. <laughs> nice. How are we doing, gents? Everybody good? Uh, all good, all good, Grant. I know you're struggling a little bit with Wi-Fi. You're in the middle of a Caribbean storm, is that right? I'm in, I'm in the middle of a South Carolina storm at the moment. Oh, I'm, right. uh, I'm down just outside of Charleston, and there is an epic deluge coming down. So my, if my internet is a bit patchy, I apologise for that. Hopefully the storm will blow over. Um, but luckily, filling in for me for most of this hour will be these two waffling on about who knows what. So let's, uh, let's jump in. There's lots to talk about. And the thing that I would love yeah. to kick things off with um, is the story of Emma Raducanu. Now, I, like everyone, I'm sure, watched uh, her march through the US Open with utter bewilderment. I mean, it was just extraordinary what she was doing. Um, and I kept expecting it to end. I kept expecting the next... Uh, the next opponent to, you know, put her in her place at 151st in the world or wherever she was. And she wasn't just beating these tennis players. She was absolutely battering them. Didn't lose a set. First qualifier to win a Grand Slam of either sex. Um, just remarkable. Uh, what did you make of it all? Giles? Well, I think everybody, particularly in the United Kingdom, I think would have been overjoyed. You know, great to have a British champion. I think the first... Um, female British champion since Virginia Wade, which takes us back a little bit for a, for a slam. Um, I, I was joyous because it's wonderful. I mean, she's just 18. She's done her A-levels. She's got A-stars and all the things going on for her. And it, it was just the joy of sport and a young person playing well. You know, some cynics say she had the much easier draw, which she did. Other people got rid of some of the top seeds, so she was fresher. But not to drop a set, to come through qualifier. I mean, you couldn't make it up if you were a scriptwriter. This is when sport can transcend even the Hollywood scriptwriters because you this would get ditched by, by uh, people cutting, saying, nah, that could never happen. And it, it did happen. It's obviously then created a, a flurry of comment from commentators, including me actually, being asked by the BBC about what this meant for her. And the mm -hmm. short answer is a lot. She could make a lot of money. Um, that's exciting. But I suppose the, 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 the cynic or the, the naysayer or the, the, the sort of word of caution and, and warning is, is the Icarus factor that... The British media in particular can put people up very high, which can cause um, some problems later on. There's going to be pressure. She's got to keep on playing. She's got to keep performing because the media, as we know, will turn if, if they find there's reason to. But the way she seems to play, and I spoke to, to Tim Henman, who, as you know, has been on the show and is a good friend and has been very involved in her camp. He's genuinely, genuinely... Um, 
telling me that this is the real deal, this kid can play. So it is very exciting. And and, and the only caution I have is actually a direct experience I had um, many, many years ago. I considered sponsoring Michelle Wee, who, as some will remember, mm. back in sort of 2000 and, gosh, I'm going to say six something like that. She was 14 years old. Yeah, she was yeah this, early, early 2000. Yeah. She was young. She was well under 16. And when you think about a company like HSBC, a kid who represented multicultural, could hit the ball the way she did, and there was a lot of hyperbole, and then life got in the way, and she has now found her way, and I think found probably a great inner happiness. But she never fulfilled the potential that the media writers were going to say. So... I just hope that the conversation about Emma Raducanu is that I think she's going to be brilliantly managed and I hope she will be by IMG and that she's given Mm -hmm. a chance to to flower and to fulfill that potential rather than just going at the super acceleration because we know that history has um, dealt some uh, some tough stories there as well. Yeah, it's, you know, it's 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 funny. I I uh, the school she goes to Newstead Woods. I know that school very well. I, when I went to school, also in Orpington at, at St Olaf's, uh, Newstead Woods was kind of like the sister school. So it, it's a phenomenal school, and they turn out you know, really smart, well grounded kids. And that will, you can see that in just the way she carries herself under what is just uh, you know an incredible amount of media attention. You know, Roger, I know you've been watching this. She, her, she's been flawless so far, right? Flawless, um, and, and look, you know, she she just looks like a million dollars. And, you know, why do I say that? Um, I, I remember back in the day, Giles may correct me, but I think somebody said at one point about Annabelle Croft, oh, you know, Annabelle, one of her problems is that she's just too, too pretty. Now, you know, we now live in a society where you can't say that, which, well, in the UK you can't say, <laughs> no problem saying it in Italy. You know, she she is the whole package, not just in terms of looking good. She's the correct mix of ethnicity in 2021. You know, she's got a great backstory. And in the theme that we always talk about in this program, which is, you know, the, the, the growing importance of, of celebrity athletes, the, the, the way that that is going more and more to the power of, of, of the, the individual, She's going to get bombarded with um, every proposal in the world to be, you know, beating Ronaldo in terms of Instagram followers and things like that. And I was just really pleased that, you know, I saw her on American TV and the way she presented herself and it was it was really elegant. She looked really pretty, but it, it was it was it wasn't it, it was just really well done. You're referring to that school there. And, and you know, the, the, the signs are great, but, you know, I, I could. You know, as soon as you see that photo in American TV or that little video there, you know, it was a bit like what we used to do in the music industry. You see in the first five, ten seconds, this is a star. Yeah. You know, like there's yeah. this expression yeah. that we had, you know, like you just, they just break through the the camera and um, she's like that, you know. So um, I think somebody is going to have to think a little bit, you know, are we going to leave some commercial money on the table in the short term uh, so that uh, she gets a little bit of protection. You know, if we put it in footballing terms, um, yeah, she's broken into the first team. She's had a great run of, you know, five, ten games. Is it now time for her to go back to the reserves a little bit and, you know, learn her trade a wee bit more? Uh, I'm saying that in the right way because if you win a major, you're obviously already... uh, I'm just saying she probably would do well to not take up all the commercial opportunities that are there now because I repeat... 
that you couldn't design um, a, per a personality like her better than she already presents herself. I have to say, Giles, the, the, the person who really came to my mind after, after she won the final there um, was Justin Rose. You know, here was a guy who came third, I think, in the, in the Open at Birkdale as a, as a teenager, you know, chipped in on the last hole to get third place back in 98, was it, I think, somewhere around there. Um, you know, young amateur, gives, foregoes the prize money, but then turns professional within weeks of, of that performance and promptly misses his first 29 cuts. Really, really struggles living up to the hype, living up to all the, the, the things that were expecting of him. Um, you know, and, and it put him back years, but fair play to him. You know, he came back to ultimately become number one in the world with majors, but it did that spotlight and all the stuff. And, and I don't think the spotlight on Rose is anything like what Emma Raducanu is going to experience. Well, he's not that pretty, um, let's be honest. But, <laughs> no, he, he, he's not, but he's also not that he wasn't as marketable in the age of Tiger Woods as Emma Raducanu is right now, right? Um, so, you know, Giles, what, what do you think about that as a parallel? Well, I think it's a good parallel. I mean, you're right. Rosie um, burst on and then no one heard from him for a while because he just couldn't get it together. Well, except, except to read that he'd missed another cut. And that, and that was, you know, all the pressure was like, he's missed another cut, you know? But, it's I, just... but, but I think there's a similarities there. And I think also history will look back on this as well. Um, Justin's parents um, and his family life, incredibly strong, very supportive and were right there for him. Now, it appears that the Radicanus, they're clearly... Um, they've clearly got a plan they've clearly this girl this girl can play tennis and they they know that but it seems that the family unit is very strong and also therefore the wider family that support and i think so often for these kids particularly in the individual sports like tennis and golf it's as much about the the, the, the quality of the agent that surrounds you the the parent not in this case but siblings just the people that keep you centered and keep you keep doing the basics because a year ago this kid was nowhere and then she was focusing on A-levels and very very difficult to cope with the super acceleration that she's going to be going through at the same time and this is why I am excited the people who know the people who understand say tennis say this kid has got something not just oh, no off the camera but on the court so if this can be channeled no yeah then it would be a very very exciting um period for not just for British tennis, which we've been looking out for here over some time, but also I think for the game in general, because we're coming to an end of the, the great men's yeah. era, which has been extraordinary. And we remember in the 80s and 70s and 80s, there were great eras of, of, of the female players, of Billie Jean King, obviously, Chris Evert, Navratilova, Steffi Graf. I think we've had the Serena, well, we've had the William sister era. It would be wonderful to usher in a new era of new kids from other parts of the world. And I say that as a Brit, obviously, um, which is exciting for tennis because tennis is the ultimate gladiator sport and requires um, gladiators, gladiators who can really, as, as, as Roger said, come through the camera a little bit and, and make us excited with whether it's the smile, the fist punch, the ambition, the grace, whatever it may be. Um, I think Emma Raducanu could be one of those people. Yeah, it's true. I mean, let, 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 let's remember Justin Rose. I, I was there in Scotland at the time when he broke through. And, and as you say, Grant, I think he uh, actually started a joint venture with Carnegie Marketing which was um, the marketing company set up by Sir David Murray. 
Um, and he immediately got into that whole, you know, commercialization side. And, and as you say, it kind of like distracted him. And, you know, that was in those days. And, and, and these days, I have to say, it's just much, much worse. You know, the, 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 these top, top athletes now are major, um, major popular culture icons. And they're going to grab her, and they're, I would, you know, like you know, you, you're going to say you're going to be the face of this in in, in, in Asia, yeah. You know, you're going to Eastern Europe, you're going. They're, so, like, how that's managed? I saw a question come up earlier, and please do ask as many questions as 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 you want. Um, you know, is it is it somebody like Federer's camp that they should look after? Listen, you know, IMG are good at this. Um, I I will watch with interest. Um, as we go into this um, this phase, because I believe that she risks the Sharapova, the Kornikova, or even going back into the old days, the George Best, you know, like, you know, nobody talks about this, but George Best broke in at the same age, broke out and, you know, played three years football. Let's be honest. Let, let's be very honest. I know he's your main guy, uh, but, you know, he, he didn't really have a career. Um, and, and, you know, it's much worse now. Um, so, It'll be very interesting to watch. And, and you know, I wish her all the best because, as Jill says, she's British. I love the the the, the really colourful rainbow background she's got. She looks a million dollars, but she's elegant. She dresses well. Um, it's going to be a great story to follow. And follow it we shall. Um, Rog, what else, what else have you got this week? What's, uh, what's on your radar? Well, you know, again, in women's sport, you know, I don't think we can let the groundsman pass without talking about the Solheim Cup. You know, um, I, oh, yes. yeah, I mean, I, I, I watched it and, you know, uh, quality of the, gro- the golf was outstanding. You know, uh, <laughs> I don't know whether it was just me, but some of the putting, you know, like where, where are they getting those from? Um, uh, and you know that um, on here, I've said a lot that I think golf is just ready now for mixed, mixed competition. Uh, it yeah. could be the, yeah. the, the, the sport that really grabs that. It's set up to like tr- try and equalize it so it doesn't even, you know, it, you could even, I, I could see that happening immediately. Um, th- th- those young those young women really did themselves proud. The, the European team, I thought, were fantastic. Um, and, you know, uh, somebody does this really well and golf that's had a great, you know, COVID, as they say, could really kick on and be the first real sport, I think, that goes unisex with credibility. Well, and what for me, what's really exciting, if you think, you know, the, 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 the golf industry has talked about that it's had a inverted commas, good COVID, people have played its participation, fantastic. But what has held golf back is still the sort of the men's section and the women's section and the kids shouldn't should be seen but not heard and all of that kind of stuff is if the game, the professional game, can lead the way with a, as you say, a, a, a mixed format, not only would it be great television, we'd watch it, we'd watch the, 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 the passion that players clearly have, but just think about the effect that could have on the industry to welcome new golfers to play golf at an amateur level, rather than the, the, the stereotype, which I know isn't true and what top golf has been shaking down and all the rest of it, but to say, this is a sport... Because golf is ultimately the the most democratic sport in the world in terms of the handicap system. You can play from very young to very old. It, it is actually the most extraordinary universal game of all. And yet it has got it in its way of itself a little bit historically over the last 50 to 100 years. 
this would be such an opportunity, not just to create a new professional product, great, but actually to be inspirational for, for many millions more golfers. Yeah, the, 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 the quality of the golf was fantastic. And obviously, we've got the Ryder Cup coming up this weekend. Um, yeah. And uh, Roger, I, I'm with you on this one. I, I'll be amazed if within 12 months, we don't see talk of a, of a mixed team competition in golf. I, I'd be amazed because it's, it's such, the, the timing is just perfect. It's absolutely perfect right now. Yeah, I mean, it's something that we'll, we'll ask uh, Keith Pelley when he comes on uh, the big interview next. You know, um, it, it's the, the Ryder Cup, which obviously is the men's version of the Solheim Cup. That in itself is stacking up to be phenomenal. Um, you know, for the, for the reason which I don't know whether we agree with this, but the reason I'm watching it is to see how long it takes for the American team to implode. You know, because frankly, the, frankly, they all hate each other. Um, uh, you know, and, and there's always been that thing that they've never got the team thing right in the Ryder Cup. But geez, with Bryson and DJ and and, and Brooks, they literally can't stand each other. And I just, I, I just can't wait to see how long it takes. Well, you don't know this story, fellas, but um, one of the things that's not on my CV but is a true story is. Um, Many say that Thomas Bjorn was a key part of um, the Ryder Cup victory last yeah, time in Paris. No doubt. What, what people don't know is that he asked a certain um, cap-wearing Welsh pirate to play in the team room, the piano. Now, admittedly, it was after the victory and only got a couple of tunes out, but it was one of the highlights of my peppered career that I was ushered into the team room where Thomas had got a piano and... Um, off I went. Quite, quite I've, a Giles, I've got, I've got to say, I, I've got to say, if, if that was the carrot, I'd dread to think what the stick was for those players. <laughs> but listen, Come listen. on, let's win the Ryder Cup yeah. and Giles <laughs> will play the piano for you. Good grief. But listen, you mentioned, you, you mentioned Peppered there. I mean, seriously, um, coming back to my old theory here, surely this must be a major disappointment for our boy, our boy Eddie. You know, he's at the age and the time now that he should be really you know in the top uh, 12 golfers in, in, in Europe that, that is part of this and you know I, I, he's, he just seems to have like gone into neutral mode on the gearbox what, what's the story Grant? No, no, I, I, I don't know he's, he's had he's had a couple of good weeks and he's had some bad weeks um, you know he's he's incredibly level-headed about it I mean I'm sure it must get to him because he's immensely talented and uh, you know when you when you talk to other players on the tour, they will tell you that that when they were juniors, Eddie was the one that they went. This guy's got so much talent. But again, you know, like like, like Justin Rose. Justin Rose had all the talent, and eventually it came through. So I have no doubts that Eddie has the talent to play in multiple Ryder Cups and and win majors. Roger, I'm not even kidding about that. So we'll see. I mean, it's it's still mm-hmm. early in his career. He's got time, and um, I'll be cheering him every step of the way. I think though, what it also reminds one um with eddie who's had you know he's had some great moments in the last four or five years and played well is how bloody difficult top level sport is to remain at the top level i mean i think the greatest i've said this on the show before i know but i think one of the greatest statistics of any golfer anywhere is phil mickelson who remained in the top 50 for 25 years i think he's one of the only players ever to have done it just the level of consistency when there are so you know you think one shot can be the difference between your card there are players who have i mean look at ricky fowler Ricky bloody yeah. Fowler. 
I love Ooh. Ricky Fowler. And so good for the game. He uh, you you yeah. love all the EastEnders characters, Rog, though. <laughs> the Johnny Depp of golf. <laughs> Very good. I enjoyed that one. <laughs> anyway, listen, so, yeah. let's move on. Let's move on from the Solheim Cup and golf. Um, Giles, what's, uh, what have you been noodling over this week? Well, there's been a, a big story over, over, well, really in the game of rugby, um, which I think is kind of a bellwether for what's going on in many sports right now with, with the, uh, the announcement, the launch, the soft launch of a new format, Rugby 12s, um, mm-hmm. a sort of hybrid, another hybrid form of the game um, launched by actually Ian Ritchie, who has been on our show, as, as you will yeah. remember, on the big interview, uh, along with former CEOs Gareth Davis and Steve Chew from New Zealand. So very strong pedigree in terms of their background in sports administration. They've got funding um, and they're working on their on their plan to ostensibly create rugby league for rugby union. And on one level, you think if they're well funded and it, it's thought through, this could be interesting. But many people, myself included, but I'm always will sit on the fence and, and be can be convinced either way is you've got rugby sevens in the Olympic Games, which has com- been completely unfulfilled in terms of the potential of getting the Olympic audience to take on rugby further. World rugby have never really taken it to the heights it could have done. You've got rugby tens, which is a, a also a format that's been very well established, particularly in Asia, which hasn't really gone anywhere, but a very exciting format. You've got the 15 aside game which has been going for quite a long time and as the Harlequins Exeter final proved not that long ago 15 aside rugby can mm-hmm. be the most exciting form mm-hmm. of its own sport so you then it begs the question what's the point in 12s why not focus on what you've got rather than reinvention which comes then as we know to the point is finances coming in and this is the other side of the sword people are looking to innovate come up with new ideas differentiate just follow it, the money you follow the money, and of course, what it does to the consumer is puts the whole lot into a big cauldron, and no one really knows which way is up. And and at the moment, rugby, you could argue cricket. I know the hundred's been really good as well, and maybe that's good. But you've got two forms of a, a crash bang format. You've got the fifty over game. You've got test match cricket, and we, the consumer, are waiting for sort of who's going to be the mark, most marketed sport to come out on top, and it just feels. It doesn't feel like a muddle that I think that the 12s format is wrong. It just creates more chaos, which makes it harder to follow as a simple fan. And as you know, I'm just a simple fan. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I, uh, I, I, when I saw the 12s stuff, uh, Jars, all I could think of was the, uh, the hitchhiker and something about Mary and the seven minute abs. You know, it's just like, no, it's not. <laughs> It's not six minute abs; it's seven minute abs, yeah, and yeah. and they're just all these different versions of rugby. Now, cricket at least it's this it's it's just the the the, the rules of the game are changed, right? It's the, the teams are the same; it's recognisable. And I think I think I agree with you. I think the rugby runs the risk. I think sevens and and fifteens are both immensely exciting games in their own way. And to me, somehow this is a marketing challenge. It's it's I, I think anyone who's a rugby fan, and look, I grew up as a football fan. And, uh, you know, I, I've found myself enjoying many in the, in the average, in the aggregate, I've enjoyed more rugby games in the last 10 years than I have soccer games. You know, I've just found that consistently rugby games have been hugely enjoyable, played in a great spirit, you know, solid contact, hard played, but fairly played. 
no whining, no rolling about on the floor, none of that sort of stuff. I've enjoyed rugby immensely in the last 10 years. So everything the game needs is right there in both formats. So why are they having to come up with 12s? Why are they not being successful with 15s and 7s? Well, let, let, we, we, need to, we need to take two or three steps back here. It's like any industry that's under disruption. Uh, it's very difficult for the incumbents to bolt on the new stuff that attracts whether it's a new audience or it's a new business model. Sports got both. It's got Gen Z and it's got uh, D2C instead of, uh, you know, B2B business. Um, and that's this is always my point. You know, like um, you, you see it in, in the old banks that, you know, don't have the luxury to just start with a, a blank piece of paper and, and create Starling or Monzo or something like that. They, they try and bolt onto a tech stack and it becomes a horrible model. And lads, this is where sport is. I think I've been saying this consistently for two or three years. You have got incumbent um, uh, rights holders to different levels trying to innovate and keep up with the times, bolting on the 100 here, bolting on uh, uh, another another golf tournament there. Um, no consideration for the players, by the way. You know, uh, the calendar, the sporting calendar and how you fit these things in and, and do it where the players still have some element of wellness is never talked about. You know, uh, we won't get into the, the two-year uh, World Cup with FIFA and Arsene Wenger and all the paid uh, ex-players that are, 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 are peddling a, a PR line that everybody wants it when they don't. Uh, this is where sport is. You have got the incumbents trying to keep up with the new cool kids that can start afresh and they're bolting on something that's looking like Frankenstein's monster. Yeah, and, and you're right. And the trouble is, I guess, you've got this uh, kind of um, imbalance where on one hand you've got the, the, the protectors, inverted commas, of the game who are trying to balance tradition but also embrace the new. It's much easier to be a disruptor, isn't it? And come up with the great idea with great funding, head off to New York, go and find the type of Jerry Cardinal type figure and see what they can come up with cash wise and come up with something new. And it's this curious balance. And you talk about innovation a lot and you talk about sport as entertainment a lot, all of which is mm -hmm. right. And there's this balance that at the moment feels very imbalanced, which is this sort of chaos between brilliant innovation that may be a good idea, may not be, investors coming in, the old guard trying to protect, some old guard are brilliant and some are awful. Mm -hmm. And so it makes, whilst we all talk about sport being incredibly dynamic and exciting now, the opportunities are endless, particularly because of digital and the, the power of the fan and all the things we've talked about a lot. But at the same time, it feels very disquieting I think as a fan because I don't think it's going well Giles I don't think it's going well I, I think it's a hell of a model um for for fans um and, and you know I, I think a backlash is coming you know the young the younger generations don't understand that you know why we have to have the MCC and the RNA uh, and all this kind of stuff they just want frankly stuff that keeps them entertained on their little screen that is their mobile phone and and I just watch this whole industry. I'm involved in, in a lot of areas, but in many ways, I'm an outsider. Let's be honest. And I, I look at them all trying to, as I say, keep up with the cool kids. And it's not just the rights holders, Giles. You know, let's take, this is one I would love your view on, you know, uh, let's take the, the, the agencies, the classic agencies, the sports agencies, 
what does tech do? Tech, by definition, um, unbundles and disintermediates the middleman. So there's a whole industry, uh, principally in the big cities of London and New York and, and things like that, that are full of agencies that are middlemen or med- middle people, because a lot of them are women, that I ask myself, how are they going to earn a corn going forward? You know, I saw, uh, maybe Sean's got it, I saw this tweet uh, late, uh, the other day about, you know, what Ogilvy would say about the ad agency model these days. And it was quite funny. And, and I just I just started thinking to myself, you know, um, in the old days, ad agencies, they made their money on the print. You know, they marked up a whole lot of the services that got them paying for their creativity. So nobody really had to realise that they were paying for creativity. They were They were paying it in the markups and print. As we've gone to the digital world, it's been very difficult for people to get paid for creativity. Uh, So I'm asking myself for you, Giles, I'm saying this, in a a world now where all the really cutting edge agencies, I'm talking about our old friends, Pump Jack, Two Circles that started this trend, I'm talking about Horizon, I'm talking about uh, Entourage Media here, they are all tech-based. They don't come with just, you know, body rental. They're coming with tech and applications of tech. And I'm seeing a whole lot of old agencies, let's just take London, staffed, overstaffed with a huge overhead, with monkey in their back. And how the hell are they going to survive? It's provocative, but if there's anybody that can answer it, it's you, Giles. Well, I, I wouldn't pretend to, to, to know the answer entirely. But what I do think is you're going to see a shift in what the purpose of agency and expertise is. So if you take, I think, event management and the ability to put on events and to deliver events and create physical real-time experiences, which require scaffolding and people having a real-time, you know, a good time in real time, that doesn't go away. So experiential, horrible American word, exists and for some agencies that's manna from heaven i think what's really interesting and to your point particularly where the real money was made because that's just very functional put on an event etc etc is the deals that were done on particularly sponsorship and and perhaps on television and media deals where the smart rights holders and there are some and they are growing i hope in number but the, the penny is dropping but slowly which is you take the right software and understand the fan to your point through technology and then deliver a virtual fan experience digitally cuts out a whole lot of people who used to earn money um in in as you say as a sort of third party mm-hmm. so the, the industry is going to change so i think it's going to be as a support service industry still there but nothing like the big prizes of people earning a large commission for really doing bugger all, which mm-hmm. is what happened. So I think it's going to be interesting because I think the rights holders, and we've talked about this so much, the smart rights holders become big platforms and become very powerful and control their own media and their own output. They may need to outsource to deliver to to, to the fan in whatever they may that might mm-hmm. be, both physically and virtually. But other than that... I mean, the lawyers will always do well, right? Because they tend to, um, and they'll they'll find a way through it. But yes, this is an in, rather like the advertising industry has changed itself. Well, it had to. They don't even call themselves advertising agencies anymore. So, yeah, interesting times. But in this revolution that we're living, where it's still not entire. I mean, God. I hope we're going to talk about this today, and if not, we can talk about it for the next probably three hundred years. Which is 
wither the Olympics? What's going on? I mean, it's the same mm-hmm. thing. The, the Olympic Games, the, the absolute... Another <laughs> Mount, old model. The Mount Olympus of sport is looking, is looking tired. And yes, Tokyo was wonderful. Yes, there were wonderful moments. Of course there were. But boy, this we are living in, in this seismic change and, and kind of hang on to your hats, which is why I'm wearing one, Grant. We should talk about the Olympics. I think, right, Charles, there's a, there's a lot to talk about there. But but just on this rugby thing, I want to stick on that just for a second. How much damage do you think it does to rugby's marketability, particularly you know, here I am in, on the East Coast of the United States in this part of the world where obviously there's a lot of hope that they can get rugby to become a big sport. The damage that having the most marketable team in the All Blacks and arguably consistently probably the, the, the most competitive and the best rugby in terms of uh, the southern nations playing each other that time zone does not help Charles you know that the, the matches the, the all black Aussie games are on at two three in the morning here every time and w- when I'm over here I, I can see all the six nation games good luck I mean unless I set an alarm for some ungodly hour I'm not going to see the uh, the all blacks against the Aussies or the or the spring box and the replays don't get shown it, it's it's a desert and it's such a shame because that's such exciting powerful rugby to watch yeah, I mean the long the the, the longitudes um, of sport, i.e., time zone sport, is immensely important. And rugby, particularly, was sort of set up on the sort of southern, sort of more through latitudes of southern and northern. Yeah, they call it always been that. Yeah, exactly. And and so it's really difficult for New Zealand because they're even off on a slightly different time zone from even mainstream Asia, which makes them yeah. even further away from it. I mean, I think you'll remember the All Blacks played very successfully. In fact, well, I think they lost to Ireland, but they did play very successfully in Chicago, I think it was, a few years back. That's right. Ireland yep, recorded that's right. their first ever win. But it went absolutely bonkers in, you know, that the, there was the All Blacks and, and, and they were playing Ireland and, and it was all going on. I wouldn't be surprised if you see, depending on what happens with whoever buys the All Blacks or who doesn't buy the All Blacks, no one really quite knows, but you've got to believe that you've got to start putting the All Blacks into a slightly, I wouldn't say a Harlem Globetrotter team because they don't play like the Harlem Globetrotters, but you've got to put them on the road. Because if you put them in Eden Park, which is a really big fortress of um, unsmiling black jersey wearing people, and it's really terrifying just being, a, I've been a lot to Eden Park and it's terrifying being there, um, you know, and that's not being on the field, obviously. Um, but it's not going to help them grow the franchise. Yeah, They have to be where the people are, which is, again, again, a bit of a diverting, but only to make the point. Roger's off-made point that football is heading towards the Americas. That's where the people are. Well, I think that the All Blacks need to head to where the audience is. Forgive me, Grant. You, you, know, you know I love you, but it is the question of a 50-year-old guy. Modern audiences don't care about that. You know, they, 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 they just don't. 54, you, Rog, 54. Well, well, you look 50, nothing more, no more than 50. You know, they, they, listen, I'm going to, why am I saying this? I'm going to, uh, this thing jumped out at me this week from an article from our wonderful friends. I think it was uh, John Wall Street, part of the Sportigo family, talking about the new investment in DC United from Yo Gotti, that is um, a rapper. Mm-hmm. The line that, that, that I underlined was this one. Bringing distinct audiences together to create four-quadrant entertainment. 
right? Yeah. What, what that means, what, what, yeah, right, like you're one of all the wall blacks, you know, who's got, who gives a damn? We're in four quadrant entertainment. What that means is you take the, the audiences from, you know, maybe it's over in esports somewhere and the KSIs of this world and that takes you into Jake Paul. Then you take the audience from music because, you know, there's the crossover all the time, whether it's Drake, you see it all the time, the, the, the way that they're, they're more and more. You just put audiences together. Together, you create something that attracts them and you are in the entertainment business and, and you know um, this is linked and I think one of the reasons why people get so upset about the the valuations of the MLS teams you know um, whether it was um, DC United or, or, or LAFC recently the valuations are extremely high uh, on any kind of grant in our world's fundamental metrics. They're, they're trading even at 13 times revenues. And and people are saying, uh, this is insane. You know, there was a great podcast on Richard Gillis where the guy was saying, you know, I better, I prefer to invest in Barnsley or, 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 or something like that. That's fine. And we can come back to that maybe. That's a, a whole other discussion. But, but what I'm saying is, in this world where everything is gravitating to two magnets, one is the magnet of finance and the other one is the magnet of media and, and, and especially new media, both of those magnets reside in America and the major celebrities are in America and they want to use the vehicle of MLS to, to basically hang out with the cool kids. It's the latest accessory. If, if I can put it that way, is to have a part of an MLS team. And, and you know, if you take that thinking forward, and this is, this is where my brain was going, somebody like Apple that has never really got into sport and just said, you know, fuck it, I'm just going to go, go big or go home. I'm going to go big. I've got Ted Lasso. I'm now going to own the whole thing. So I, I'm going to, like, I'm going to take a big stake in the MLS, put a, a whole lot of money into it, and encourage those clubs to buy the best uh, talent in the world, employ them as players, and we get our whole Hollywood thing going. Um, we maybe merge with the Mexican League. We've got the World Cup coming up. Who cares about all of those super leagues and the, Amer and the Europeans and their bloody relegation? We've got the best players. This is an economy that just follows you know, the top athletes. We can buy the top athletes, finance it either by the big media companies or big finance. You know, there is there is a world where I see that the center of soccer is the MLS. And that is why I believe certain people are putting down markers. Uh, you're not going to get an argument from me that the fundamentals don't stack up. I am saying, Grant, that we live in a world now of flow of money and the flow of money trumps the, the, the fundamentals and the flow of money is going towards the MLS. Yeah, right, Roger, I, I got to say, I, I, I can see that. Absolutely coming to pass. It's going to be interesting you know, when you talk about these, um, uh, the idea of these being the latest accessory. That's the part of this that I only have the only question mark about. I think everything you've said there stacks up. Absolutely, I can see it happening. But this idea of it being an accessory, a plaything, something to you know, kind of dangle around. And you know, I had this, this conversation with with Jim Pilotta when he was buying Roma. I said, Look, you know, these are just expensive vanity projects for most people. And and there's still that question mark about mm. are these sports franchises just that? Because you are, as Jim found out, you're one poor season away from having you know tomatoes thrown at you in the street, and the audience no, is not vanishing. Not if you're in and, the world of four quadrant entertainment. You're well, not. Roger, you're, you see, you're that's the right. bit you're missing, mate. You're, you're absolutely right. You're, you're absolutely right. 
three of those quadrants are a mystery to me. So uh, <laughs> what do I know? Yeah, what do you think about that? Because, like, you know, uh, the more and more that you're now back in the, the world of looking at um, properties to get you, the brands that you work for around, you're looking far and wide. You're looking at the arts. You're looking at sport. You're looking at music. Uh I see all these worlds coming together and 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 I, I fear for sport because it thinks it's 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 got no competitors and I think that it's got all the competitors in the world. Well, there's a couple of things. There's authenticity, uh, I real passion and what people really care about. And and sport has held that for a very long time, a sort of intergenerational grandfather, father, mother, you know, whatever it has been, that has been eroded massively by the young as different media, different forms of entertainment have come in. So any brand that's looking at a sort of, I don't know, traditional, let's say financial services, sort of 30 to 50 market, can probably still hang on in there and go for the traditional mass affluent type associations in sport, which is why rugby, why cricket, why golf, why tennis have all done very well because they go for a, a still what is considered a traditional audience. What is so intriguing is that brands are seeking to go younger and mm-hmm. start talking to the 12 to 15 to 30 audience. They've got to be looking at a very different, uh, obviously, type of associations and partnership and completely different consumption. But then what's interesting again is, well, what are the brands who are looking further ahead than that about trying to start snaring the 5 to 15 audience? And what does that look like? Because what that probably isn't is what we all grew up with. Because it seems to me that what technology has done on so many levels societally has super accelerated almost everything that we do from how, well, everything, commerce, but also our interests. And I agree with you in a rather sort of dystopian and slightly depressed way, is I wonder I, I wonder if this we can sustain this change. And then there's part of me, I've just been watching The Handmaid's Tale, I'm probably a bit behind everybody else, but it's a kind of presents a dystopian world and um, wonderful Margaret Atwood book, which was televised. And I'm just hoping, and no one need tell me what happens, that there's going to be a return to a kind of um older older world where traditional values of things like local football teams do matter I, I don't think it will but i do think that all sponsors give a toss about if they're doing their job properly is engaging the right people now if you gauge older people it's easy you can go down the traditional route and mm-hmm. a lot of the big brands will but if you're looking for the future then and you're, say, looking at, 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 at soccer as an example, then I would agree that you'd be looking for the biggest and passionate youngest audience that is embracing new soccer. And that is probably not traditional. That's probably, as you say, with a Super League or something that's created out of MLS. What's really scary about that, and I, will, I promise mm. you I'll draw breath um, at some point, is that... Um, when it's built on just money without human um, passion and history and heritage, it's also a very, very flimsy, flimsy structure. There are no roots. And like the palm tree that has no roots, it's susceptible in a high wind to falling over. And that's my worry. I can see sport going to great, huge heights, 
in different iterations with investors coming in and creating huge wealth for themselves, for hopefully competitors, and maybe for the fan as well in terms of richness of engagement. And then a high wind or things change. And I can see that all of that kind of layered history of 150, 200 years of, of many sports will just collapse. And that's maybe that's an, the inevitability of, of big money. Got a couple of questions here. Um, well, the first one's a comment, actually. Yes, it is a Charles Rickett, Rennie McIntosh uh, chair. Uh, thanks, Ian, for that. Um, uh, Tim, uh, Tim Pilch um, uh, is asking a question. Well, if I'm right, why are the Americans, so many of them, coming over this side to the, the pond and, and invest in European clubs? Um, uh, that's a great question as well, you know. And and, and I saw one of them doing that uh, with the investment in Bruges by the uh, Orkila uh, Private Equity. You know, the the, the, the podcast that referred to was Paul Conway talking about uh, his investments, and that's uh, that's a different game. That that's a game of um, uh, there's two or three reasons that they think they can do it. Um, one of them is that they love what they think is um, the possibility to make a business out of player trading because it's done poorly in Europe. It's not done with data. The second one is they believe in the re-rating of what they call the franchise value. And you just need to sit there and re-rate to American style. And the third one is um, they believe that the poor quality of management and marketing in European football uh, is is a classic case of easy uh, operational efficiencies. I don't dispute that. I don't dispute that. All I say, um, and again, maybe I've got too much of a a finance hat on these days. You know, Paul Conway, and it was a wonderful podcast from the unofficial partner. You know, he t- he said he said, look, you have to go over here. You have to put in the hard yards. You have to get in the, the ditch. You have to be here every day because this will consume you. And and, and for me, you have to execute that perfectly to get any return as an investor to to manage a club in in European football because you've got the R words, you've got relegation and promotion that distorts the economics of the sport. Uh, I think I think that's the 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 the, the first thing I would say. The, the, the second thing I would say is again finance and return on investment. That's not where the big money is. You know, I think we've got a, a, a tweet here that shows the, the, the valuation of, of some of the MLS franchises in recent years. You know, go go where the puck is going to be. Don't go where the puck is. You know, and, and, and that's what I'm trying to say. I can see a future where the puck is going to go to the MLS. And whether you like it or not, there is more money from the financial point of view just now in playing the big game. Again, follow the money, go big or go home. What, so both of these strategies, that the, the one of the Americans coming over here and, and the other one of MLS being the center of the world, I think can be, be complementary. I think you get more return financially by going for the big the big picture one. That's, that's where uh, the world is just now. But I'd like to contradict myself by asking Grant this. One of the big uh, developments in recent days is the fallout from the Evergrande Chinese uh, financial institution that is reaching its tentacles and, and the ways created um, to Inter Milan, to uh, all, all that's um, really around, you know, the, the, Grant knows this, the, the world of finance is very interconnected. So um, what I want to ask Grant a little bit, um, because I think this is one of our 
we can do it on our United Entertainment because we've got Grant. Um, how do you see what's happening in China now? Maybe uh, having a knock-on effect, rising interest rates, capital harder to get hold of, um, the NFT if there's a bubble there, valuation in MLS if there's a bubble. How are you reading these last couple of days about what is going on in China exactly as we speak? Well, it's, it's too early to say, Roger. Right? I mean, it, it, what, what's happening is definitely very serious. The question is, is it a local problem that will that will get contained? Um, will the government step in? It's tough to know because it's such a big problem they've got there. The government may not be able to step in. So we, we don't know. But one thing we do know, as you, as you said there, is that your finance is so interconnected now. It's so global. And, you know, really a lot of what we've spoken about here, a lot of the, the deals that we've talked about on the big interview with people who've come in, most of those are wholly predicated on the availability of incredibly low-cost capital. Yeah, absolutely right. So do we know whether this uh, potential Evergrande default in China, which for those people who aren't familiar with it, is a $300 billion property company that was levered up to the gills, does that have a direct line to what we're talking about, Rog? Probably not. But well, it because does do of, Milan. They, they find out. It does do into Milan, yeah. It does yeah. do into Milan. But what I mean is, does that property developer create systemic problems which pervade the entire global financial system? And it, it's it's too soon to say. It's unlikely, but not impossible, I think, is, is the way to put it. But realistically, that aside, you know, with the inflationary pressures we're seeing around the world, that's going to be pressure on rates to go higher. And if rates yeah. go higher, suddenly an awful lot of the loans that people have taken out to buy sporting franchises don't look so economically sound anymore. So so the, the whole thing is on a knife edge. You have to say that. And I think everybody who is, well, not everybody, that's unfair, but uh, a lot of people who are borrowing money to gear up and pay astronomical amounts for sport franchises, they don't work in a world where interest rates are 4 or 5%. And so it's something that people need to watch. It's something that people need to be aware of that if you start to see inflation increasing, if you start to see interest rates going up, it will ripple through the sporting industry very, very fast indeed, not just from the finance side of things, Rog, but from fans being unable to afford the kind of uh, sticker prices that, that these, um, you know, these new owners are going to want to put on uh, a lot of individual parts of the whole experience. That's an amazing point, and 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 I, I want to tell you, I had the the pleasure to spend um, Saturday with uh, Nick Cogans, the founder of uh, Pumpjack DataWorks, um, who has got an amazing background as a true sports guy, a college sport athlete, and and we were chatting. We spent you know most of the Saturday together. We you know we did the whole Milan, the art and the architecture. Then we went to San Siro and we were treated really really well by Inter Milan. And, you know, we're talking about fans and, you know, his whole thing is about, you know, understanding the fans better. Gels knows this better than me. But, you know, we started getting on to ticket prices to, to your point here now, Grant. And he said to me, I took my family to an NFL game and I get no change out of a grand, a thousand dollars. Yep. And I said to him, right, OK, you know, sure. You know, what What was it? Super. No, he said normal, pretty normal seats. So I said to him, well, how does the normal working class family in Detroit follow the lines? He says, they don't. I said, what? He said, they can't afford it. Some of the tickets have got a face value, but they will never see them because they go into the secondary market and they yep. go into the corporate market. 
And then he told me how the corporate market works, that the employer gives the employee these tickets almost as a kind of like incentive thing and everything like that. So I was saying to him, and I'd love to hear both of your views on this. I was saying to them, but if you can attract the normal kids on normal money or the normal father and mother that want to take the family and, the, you know, a maximum £200 is, even that's a lot for them, but 1000 is ridiculous. Are you not cutting off the lifebloods of the, the, that sport? You know, you talked about 150 years there, Giles. You're not cutting off that umbilical cord because the bottom of the pyramid, the working class kid is not going to get to the NFL. And he said, that's right. And I never knew that. I, I never knew that there was very little chance for a working class family in America to attend the NFL. Sure. Charles? Yeah, and I think this is the, this is, it, it's so salutary, isn't it? It's a warning. Now you, you can keep going with the inflation and, you know, corporations buying it tickets. Well, lucky me, I've got a pair of tickets and the boss, I've got to go to see the Dallas Cowboys or whatever it may be. But I would still contend, um, and this is where I guess college sports very powerful in America still. But I would still contend that one of the real joys about going and being involved in sport, I, I challenge anybody, and I'm going to be really parochial about this, I challenge anybody to go to the Millennium Stadium or the Principality Stadium in Cardiff when the Welsh rugby team are playing and you've got 80,000 Welsh people singing and they are not um entitled this is real fans that is actually the magic of what then sells the sport so it's the same as the copper anfield it's the same as the San Siro. Yeah, but if you can't afford to get in the stadium giles that's right. not there's going to be no singing right and that's this because. is i guess this is my salutary warning is that we can inflate and inflate so much that the actual life essence so here's the challenge for MLS. I think everything you say is right, but will the fans be fans? And I know this is, you know, granting you have ding-donged about this for years, but part of the, 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 the costume of sport is about the passion of the fan and of the competitors responding to the fan. We even saw it during COVID where football in particular just did not resonate, nor did the Lions yeah. in South Africa, because the fan creates an ingredient that create something very, very magical. And so uh, there's a sort of short-termism to massive profit, but human history is littered with sort of great growth and then great disappointment. So I, I'm i sitting on the fence a bit. I, I worry it because I love nothing more than being in... I live in West London, as you know, and, and, and I've never even admitted this, but, you know, you're, spo you're spoiled in West London between really three clubs, I guess, in QPR, Fulham and Chelsea. And as a kid growing up in West London, and my father was a was a Welshman, we went to football, but it was kind of arbitrary. There is only one football club worth really going to um, if you want to see what real football fans are all about now. And that's let, let, let's leave Grant. that. Let's let, let's leave that. Let's leave that unsaid. Joe, I think we all know who that is, Giles. I think we all know who that is. Uh, by, by the way, can we just apologise to Brentford fans everywhere? <laughs> yeah. God. Yes. Um, let, yeah. Let, let's come back to Nico's question. But you're right, here, Giles. Yeah. There's, you know, yeah, look, Nico's I, I, questionnaire, because I, I get this a lot. Um, what do you think the answer to that is, uh, Grant? Um, well, listen, I, I, I think I, I fear that Giles is right. And, I, and I've, I've, I'm, look, I'm fortunate, I've been to a couple of the only MLS games I've been to say, I've been to see was at uh, was Atlanta United. And I've been to a couple of games there. And I have to say, 
Uh, and we've talked about this before, Roger, I think, in, in yeah, maybe goal on goal. You know, the 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 football, the quality of the football was dreadful. I mean, let's let's be honest. It was dreadful. Yeah, but that can be but, fixed. That's just but, the talent. But, but, uh, you just buy but, it in. But the experience was fantastic. The fans, the fans were, I mean, really, really engaged. But the owners, you know, Arthur Blank and the rest of the ownership group have done very smart things, right? They've brought the ticket prices way, way down. They've made it yeah. deliberately affordable. They sell really cheap concessions, right? All the 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 Cokes, the beers. They want the whole idea is they want people in the stadium two, three hours before kickoff because it's cheaper to eat and drink in the stadium than it is in the restaurants around the stadium, right? So they're, they're definitely aware of this, but one has to think that there's going to be an element of subsidy to this, Roger. We've got to keep prices low and then we'll build up our audience and then we can raise them. I don't know, but I, I, I think Giles is right. And that as we've gone back and forwards, this has been my fear for a long, long we time the, now the, that this, you price you know, people out. People, people do say this, oh, there's no authenticity in the MLS. Listen, I hear that argument. I, I, I actually, again, this is the, the Gretzky, you know, look where the puck is going to go. The demographics of, of soccer in, in the Americas, especially with the Hispanics, are, are all in favour. Uh, there's a World Cup coming up. All the things I said before, the whole celebrity gig thing and everything like that. And then I, I come back, that's why I wanted to mention this, I come back to the bottom of the pyramids, participation, participation and actually being going, going to a game. So let's assume the NFL becomes just corporate corporate land. You know, you, you, the, the Cowboys, you only go there if you get invited by a company. No normal folk there. You know, how long is that going to remain authentic? That's the Roy Keane prawn cocktail group, right? Um, yeah. The, 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 then you've got the whole concussion thing. I don't want little Johnny to be playing American football because he'll end up like, um, you know, like a marshmallow in the head. So that's a challenge. Basketball, unless you're uh, an athletic freak, probably isn't for you. And baseball is dying on its feet. Uh, let's... Let's just be honest, it's dying on its feet. Soccer, soccer, where girls can also play very easily. The mixed thing again, uh, the Hispanic demographic, much younger, celeb. Yeah, okay, maybe there's a couple of grounds where it's not kicked off yet. That's just strategic marketing. You get money, you bring in the talent, you market it correctly. America's the land of this. They did professional wrestling, for Christ's sake. You know, what I'm saying is, it can be done, and don't. Reg, whatever you're saying, say it quickly because we've got about ten seconds left. You, you, right, you, I'm, I'm you, out. I'm out. I'm, you're otherwise, out. I'm ranting. Listen, I'm, yeah. I'm sorry to cut you off. We can carry this on next time. But look, no, no, uh, it's, it's, been anyway. a, it's been a fun hour. Um, I'm not sure if we've got time for this, but uh, our thanks to our sponsors, Entourage Media, if they're still there. No, we're out, are we? Well, as you heard there, uh, we ran out of time without uh, without realizing with Roger in mid rant. So our apologies for that. All that remains, I guess, is to thank you for listening. Uh, Apologise that we got cut off from midstream. And remind you that you can follow us on Twitter. You'll find us at Entertained R. That's A-R-E, the word. You'll find Roger at RPM Coma, as in the lake. As in the lake. Uh, you'll find Giles at GilesMorgan71. And you'll find me at T-T-M-Y-G-H. So thanks again for listening. We'll be back soon with some more fantastic conversations. Fantastic conversations.